Banks given the green light to devastate communities and Australia condemns itself to nuclear destruction. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 10th of November 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome to the show, Robbie. Thank you, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing how the Regional Banking Task Force has unleashed an avalanche of regional bank and all kinds of you know, city and other bank branch closures. It's quite stunning. Which is mass disruption to communities all over the country. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll talk about how Australia is painting a big, huge nuclear target on itself. Yep. Now, if you want to help get today's show circulating more widely, hit the like button, subscribe. Um, we've got more updates coming out this week. There's been some interesting things happening in Parliament the last couple of days, so we'll yep. be putting out some video shorts. So hit the notification bell and you'll be alerted of those when they, as soon as they come out and share this on social media and so forth as widely as you can. Now, into the first topic, banks given the green light to devastate communities. Now, firstly, before we get into the meat of this subject, uh, we have a couple of updates uh, relating to what I just mentioned, that there's been some interesting going on, goings-on in the Parliament this week. Well, Elisa, and it does relate to the banks devastating communities because um, it relates to the, the regulators and the Reserve Bank, and they're part of the system that's been devastating communities for a long time using um, banking. But I, wanted, I just want to play some highlights from um, what's called Senate estimates. And so a couple of times a year, while the House of Representatives sits, the Senate committees, standing committees, have hearings and they bring in all the government agencies, etc., to to um, ask them questions about the, 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 function, the daily functioning of government. And people would be familiar with seeing these scenes on the news uh, at night. Anyway, the two I want to highlight... Yesterday, ASIC, the Australian Securities Investments Commission, appeared before Senate estimates, and um, uh, it was actually a rushed hearing, which which uh, goes to show why we need the long inquiry that the, the John Adams report on ASIC's failure to investigate complaints has led to. We now got two inquiries. Remember, the excuse was, "Oh, we don't need an inquiry; we'll just use the normal oversight hearing." Well, this was one of the normal oversight hearings and it was rushed, mm. right? So we've got that inquiry. And let me just say, um, the details are on our website. Make sure you make your submission. This is, you know, very important. We've got an ASIC inquiry. Submissions close on the 3rd of February. Everyone who has had any kind of experience with ASIC, please make a submission. But back to yesterday, um, Senator Gerard Rennick, LNP Senator from Queensland, he went in and he had five, he was only given five minutes, but he asked ASIC questions about a specific event last week. I'll just explain. It was a forum ASIC hosted in Sydney where it was open to the public where you could go for the day and listen to ASIC speeches, rub shoulders with them, attend a dinner that night and get to um, you know, directly interact with your regulator, the Australian Securities Investments Corporation, for the low, low price of $2,500. And that, of course, is something that all the hundreds of thousands of financial victims who needed ASIC and ASIC wasn't there, they will never be able to afford that $2,500. While the corporations, 
that ASIC is supposed to regulate, who are the ones who prey on those financial victims, they're the ones who pay the $2,500. And it was a question that deserved to be asked, and Jared Rennick asked the ASIC chairman, Joe Longo, this question. Senator Rennick, you've got a five-minute block. Awesome. Thank you, guys. How are you guys? Uh, look, I'd just like to ask about the ASIC forum that occurred on the, the weekend. I note that the ticket prices for the forum were more than $2,000 a ticket. Uh, do you think it's appropriate that ASIC, uh, ASIC is giving access to the big end of town to its senior leadership at a price point which is inaccessible to mum and dad retail investors? Well, it's not a, it's not a laughing matter. It's very no, difficult no, it's to not, get access. It's access. not a laughing matter at all. Access. The, um the forum was attended by a wide range of people uh, and uh, the, uh, we can't pay for that. So people give an opportunity to attend the forum. It got a lot of support from across the market, from consumer groups, industry, a whole range of people were there. Uh, a whole range of topics were um, explored. Uh, speakers didn't charge for their time. Uh, so they didn't charge for their time, why have you charged so yeah, much? Because uh, people were fed and they, uh, there was a dinner. Uh, there was a range of other expenses associated with putting on a forum. Uh, but I um, didn't expect to be questioned about this actually, so I'm going to ask Warren Day whether there's anything more we can add to assist your concern. Oh, that's all right. I've got another question he can answer. Okay. Are events such as uh, the forum uh, on the weekend an opportunity for senior leadership in ASIC to be captured by the big end of town? Well, it wasn't on the weekend. It was actually last Thursday, Friday. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. It's a very public event. It's very transparent. Um, to my mind, it's an excellent example of ASIC engaging with all sectors of the community and industry. Um, the representatives of the media were there. The assistant treasurer gave a keynote speech. Um, far from uh, regulatory capture, I would put it the other way around. I think it's a, a, a fantastic example of ASIC engaging with the general community, of listening to their concerns, of us being very open with the issues that we think are important. So climate change, crypto, superannuation, a whole range of subjects were explored in a very public, thoughtful manner. Uh, so I'm very proud okay. of the so ASIC you, Forum. Absolutely so you, proud of it. Did you discuss scalping on the stock market by high-frequency traders? Was that raised at all? Uh, that wasn't raised because it wasn't on the agenda. Right, yeah, because that's a big issue with small investors. Mm. <laughs> now, actually, this was, that was gold, Elisa. He caught Longo right out. I mean, these, they, Longo, you know... I didn't expect to be asked about this. No, yeah. because that's normal for you guys. Yeah. What? 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 We're we supposed what? to be regulating someone somewhere? <laughs> it's, it's a bit unseemly to be rubbing shoulders with the people we're regulating while all the masses of victims can never... We call that normal. We call that, oh, yeah, we're being egalitarian, right? Mm. You're full of it, mate, right? That that was a beautiful line of questioning. It just shows you how, to, how out of touch this regulator yeah. actually is. And I say next time this comes around... We'll put the call out. We'll raise some money and get a handful of Sterling First and other victims and pay for them to get in there and let's see how enjoyable their dinner we actually is. Did, we actually didn't get enough notice because that is exactly what we would have mm. done. We should have had... It's a pity that... I'm going to challenge Joe Longer because he's from Western Australia. Grow a pair, Joe, and do that in Perth because there will be 100 Sterling yeah. First victims outside 
and you won't get in. You'll have to get past those Zimmer frames, and I hope one of them picks them up and whacks you over the head, right, while you're going in for your $2,500 dinner with financial predators. Um, that's metaphorical, of course, in case Joe Longo decides to play victim. Um, notice the part where Jared slightly got a detail wrong. He mentioned the weekend rather than it was during the week. And what does Joe Longo do? Just immediately oh, jump Rennick, on that. Rennick got the detail. So, yeah, Jared Rennick mm. got the detail wrong. Immediately jump on that. So what? Like that's that's how these bureaucrats do. They hide behind that kind of stuff all the time. Mm. Anyway, um, and I have before we move on to the next one. I have to I have to say that uh, at the beginning of this ASIC hearing, Joe Longo came with a prepared statement, which he read out with great, like the arrogance was oozing out of him. Mm. And the prepared statement was not actually a statement about that hearing yesterday. It was a statement clearly designed to preempt the inquiry, the 18-month inquiry they're about to be subjected to based on the Adams report. That's what that statement was about. And the arrogance with which he delivered it was, it was too long. We can't play it here. Mm. We'll, we'll, probably, we'll put it on our, um, our YouTube channel and people can watch it there. Right? They'll see what I mean. Our ASIC is in damage control mode now, but not damage control to the extent of changing their behaviour, Lisa. Mm -hmm. Damage control to the extent of trying to intimidate the, 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 the lawmakers of this country, you back off. Yeah. That's still their mindset, right? So let's and see where that goes. Speaking of bankers that are above the law <laughs> and in an exclusive position, you've got another update from Senate hearings today. Yeah, well, twice, twice a year... Uh, on average, the high priests of the temple come down. <laughs> have to come down <laughs> to, the the, to the people and appear before Senate estimates. And in this case, the high priest of the temple, if, you're not, if you haven't uh, jumped to the conclusion, is the Reserve Bank of Australia. So now um, this relates to bail-in. Regular viewers will be aware of bail-in, right? Bail-in, our party... We've almost we made a name for ourselves being the first party in Australia to really take on this issue of bail-in, where after the global financial crisis, the whole culture of banking was changed, and the the bankers explicitly said from now on we're going to essentially use the public as the equivalent of airbags to absorb crashes, right? So that if a bank gets in a crisis, we can steal the customers' money, whatever however much we need to keep us going, and they start, they did it in Cyprus in 2013, uh, etc. That policy was hatched at the Bank for International Settlements, which is known as the Central Bank of Central Banks. Um, and it actually has a very, very dodgy history. It collaborated with the Nazis. And after World War II, it was going to be wound up for that reason. Mm. And then bankers in London and New York intervened and saved it. And right now it's the club of central banks um, where, where they all go. They earn tax-free incomes. They have, they have the equivalent of diplomatic... These are bankers. Mm. They're not diplomats, that, but they have the equivalent of diplomatic immunity that diplomats get at the UN, right? They can break the law. This is, this is in Switzerland. Everyone in Switzerland, Lisa, focuses on everyone, the wrong city. Everyone in the world focuses yeah. on the wrong Swiss city. There's one Swiss city called Davos, which is a holiday destination. Yeah, a lot of crap's talked about there, true. But that's the holiday place, which is a talk fest a couple of times a year. The real work is done over the mountain in a place called Basel. The real seat of power. Right, where the Bank for International Settlements is. And if you want to read a really good book, it's called The Tower of Basel, mm. right, about this. Um, anyway, so again, Jared Rennick, hero of the people. Jared, I take my hat off to you. And I'm, I'm, I say that with a smile on my face, but it's true. He, he actually is, because he's trying to get to the nub of some of this stuff. 
Jared had asked, um, had put in a Freedom of Information request to the RBA for all their correspondence with the Bank for International Settlements. What have you been talking about? Now, the RBA is an Australian government-owned organisation. And some people think a lot of central banks are privately owned. The RBA isn't. It's Australian government-owned, right? They must be accountable. And so the elected representative has put in that request. He got turned down. And so a few hours ago, mm. this today, he followed it up. What's what happened? Um, look, I did ask earlier on uh, in the last set of estimates for the correspondence between the RBA and the International Bank of Settlements, uh, and mm -hmm. the RBA refused to do that. Can you tell me why, uh, you know, as an elected uh, representative of the Australian people, we, we sh shouldn't have access to correspondence between the RBA and the Bank of International Settlements? So there was a couple of points. I think the first one is that um, the requested amount of information is voluminous. Sure. Because a lot of it is very transactional. It's um, just meetings, setting up meetings, these sorts of incidental things. So it's quite voluminous. <clears throat> it would take a lot of work for us to do. But the second point is that the, the um, information that is potentially um, uh, of interest um, is, in fact, confidential. And it that's is. the information I want to get a hold of. Yes. Because I'd like to know why there's information between the RBA and the Bank of International Settlements, who have got a notorious history. They melted down the gold, uh, Nazi gold. I mean, they, they are a notorious operation. Why is that information confidential? Why does the RBA consider that information confidential from the Australian people? Because a lot of the information is about conversations we are having with other central banks. And um, those conversations are had on the condition that they are kept confidential. And if we were to release that sort of information, it's, uh, I would say one response would be that uh, we would not be allowed to be included in conversations which include confidential information with other central banks. And, and that's my concern, because confidential, uh, central banks aren't being held to proper standards of transparency and accountability. And given that it's been central banks that have expanded the volume of money on a dramatic scale in the last 30 years, if anyone should be transparent and accountable, it should be the world's central banks, especially the US Federal Reserve, uh, which is owned by a number of prime banks. Most people in this room wouldn't even know what a prime bank is. Um, and that's the level of secrecy they operate behind. So I will continue to pursue those confidential uh, minutes, whatever they may be, uh, because I think that the RBA should be accountable to the parliament, uh, which, as Senator Wong herself said last week, is the ultimate level of accountability and central banks shouldn't be keeping um, conversations to themselves. But I'll, I'll finish up with that as a statement. Now, when he said about the Nazis melting, melting down the Nazi gold, I laughed out loud because this is like, you know, these people, the modern RBA at least live in a bubble, right? They probably wouldn't even have a clue what they're dealing with. But look at that excuse. No, 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 no. This is confidential. You don't get to find out. Discussion between central bankers, that's top secret. That, that's why it's the priesthood, mm. right? This is the priesthood. So anyway, you've, Jared's ripped back the veil there. That is how they think. And I will point out um, that that's how intelligence agencies work as well. These are not formal powers to deny, to deny the Australian government information. Um, but by saying, oh, look, we, the, this is our discussions with our central bank partners, they're in confidence, mm. right? Most politicians will accept that, ex that, that um, excuse. 
The intelligence agencies use the same excuse. ASIO says to the government, well, we can't tell you what we're talking mm. about with CIA. That's in confidence with them, right, etc." Yeah. And those are government agencies that get to operate in secret outside of democratic accountability. That's what we're yeah, dealing with. Yeah, the fact that you have elected politicians who can't find out the decision-making processes of unelected bankers yeah. who are yet dictating the policy, economic policy, that's you know, governing Australia and causing heartache for so yep. many Australians right now. And it now. goes against the principle of the 1936 Banking Royal Commission, mm -hmm. which was called based to, to settle this idea because in, in 1931, the governor of the, of the Commonwealth Bank then refused to follow the treasurer's order. And the Royal Commission examined it in detail and said, no, no, the elected government is the ultimate authority. Yep. Right? And that's why the RBA must be made to answer those questions. Yes, and there'll be more. We'll be saying a lot more about this subject and following through on what um, Jared and other senators uh, made other good contributions in those same hearings today. Oh, yeah, Nick McKim, Malcolm Roberts, the trio. And um, Matt Canavan as well. Matt Can excellent. Yeah. Um, so we'll have more to say about that. Now, on the same subject, the, um, these unelected bankers have another plan in mind, and this is happening worldwide, and that is... Uh, we put out a press release on this this week, a digital revolution. Uh, but is this really inspired by people wanting to shift their banking to go digital, Robbie? No, absolutely not. So, look, I'll, let's start off by I want to read Twitter to people. We're going to run a series of tweets <laughs> yeah, on we'll the screen. Yeah, we'll put these here. up on the screen because this is stunning. Uh, so, this is Dale Webster from the Regionals Twitter feed. Now, Dale Webster, is a, she was former Herald and Weekly Times journalist, is now independent, and she has done the government's job for it and documented the true extent of bank branch closures in regional Australia. Now, why has Dale done this? Well, to, I mean, is it because the, when, like if the banks were telling the truth, Elisa, that there's no demand for face-to-face -face services now, that's mm. why they're closing branches, they would close branches and nobody would care or notice, right? But every time they close a branch, there's a huge uproar. You know why? Because they're lying. Mm. And I'll prove that in a minute. But so Dale, as someone who this was dear, near to dear, dear to her heart, her dad used to be a banker, actually. She grew up in regional banks. Um, he was a bank manager. She set out to document the true story. She found out the, 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 the official database of the bank regulator, APRA, was lies, mm. right? And she's exposed all that, and a lot of that's had to be acknowledged in Parliament, etc. But our regular viewers would know how much we talk about this. A year ago, we had, they started what's called the Regional Banking Task Force, right? And we've been talking about it for at least 18 months, this particular subject, because it relates to our campaign for a postal bank. But this series of tweets in the last... I'm just going to go back five days, right? Um, this, is a, this is a series of tweets by Dale, who's keeping... Dale Webbs, who's keeping tabs on which banks are staying open. So this was uh, five days ago. We've hit just 1,000 banks left in regional Australia. The latest big fours to thank for this are ANZ, which has left Smithton bankless after Combank shuts this month. Tincan Bay, Bay also loses only bank thanks to NAB. Told you, by the way, Steve, Jim Chalmers, Stephen Jones, Finance Sector Union, so that's her announcement that we're down to 1,000 banks. And I kid you not, just a few weeks before that, um, Dale had announced that we're at about 1,015. Hmm. And on five days ago, we announced, she announced we're at 1,000, we're down to 1,000 now. Um, 
That's it. and then next the next day, and that's it. Regional Australia has now dipped below a thousand, has dipped below one thousand big four banks with the closure of the NAB at Warner's Bay. Hashtag nine nine nine. Keep scrolling. Well, that escalated quickly. Seems NAB is on a closing spree. Strathalbyn gone, Cooma gone, Mwillumbug gone, Lauriton gone, Tincan Bay gone, Warner's Bay gone. Nine hashtag nine hundred ninety five left. That was three days ago. And then the same day, and at another two NAB closures to previous lists, Dysa and Bombala, both losing last banks, calling it. We are at crisis point for regional banking. You need a moratorium and a new inquiry immediately. Hashtag 993. Um, let me just, let me just uh, jump forward a little bit because it, it doesn't stop. Uh, one day ago, gone. ANZ camper down. Jim Chalmers has to respond to a petition with 5,000 signatures on it calling for an immediate moratorium on regional bank closures and a new inquiry. Hope he does the wrong thing. Um, hashtag hope he nine. Does the right thing. Sorry, hope he does the right thing because he's doing. <laughs> sorry, hope he does the right thing. And then she did hashtag nine nine three. Then oops, hashtag nine nine two. Two. Plummeting so fast, can't I keep can't up. keep up. Mm. Um, and, and there's no doubt even more that we haven't then, heard about yet. Less than twenty four hours ago, so ANZ Bank is also on a closing spree. Sites that survived the colour being downgraded to cashless and can no longer be reported as branches to APRA, Werribee and Sutherland are two examples. And this is just. Uh, non-stop. And before we go into how this came about, uh, we had some interesting um, information about how what NAB's thinking is, if you want to go through that, in terms of this flyer that they've put out. Well, so, so what the, 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 the branches that, that um, Dale Webster named in those tweets, this is one of them, and we published a bunch of them in, in our uh, magazine here, so, Laura, just take Lauriton. So they send what, the, what NAB does is prepare a fact sheet to send out to the branch to explain to the customers at that branch why they're shutting the branch. So um, here's what it says. NAB Lauriton is closing. More and more, our customers are choosing to do their banking online over the phone or by video conference. Choosing. That's what NAB says. And then... In the next paragraph, because of these changes, their choice to go online, we've made the difficult decision, oh, it's broken our little heart, to close our NAB Lauriton branch at Haven Plaza. I mean, And then they've got the exact same flyer for everywhere. Every, 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 sorry, every stock branch. Stock standard, yeah, everywhere exactly. they've closed a branch. But then it, at least it includes... Oh, hang on, before, before I go to that next bit, I just want to explain my little uh, dramatics there about my heart, and, or, or NAB's heart, because it doesn't have one. One one way to, to like be really clear on why this is a lie, even before we're going to prove it now, mm-hmm. that when they say, oh, we're, shut, we're only shutting branches because people are going digital, they've been shutting branches for 25 years. As soon as they sold the com, privatised the Commonwealth Bank, mm-hmm. all the banks started shutting branches. It's already led to two inquiries in the past, mm-hmm. right? They want to shut branches. They look for every and excuse to shut no branches. When there's no competition, they yeah. will. So... Um, because they, yeah, they, they, they assume they can um, Get away with it. C- keep people as customers other ways. But look what these figures show by their own uh, admission in the same little um, fact sheet. They have this little box. How is banking changing? To give you a bit more context to our decision, here's how our NAB Lauriton customers are banking. And the first one backs up their reason. 91% 
who use this branch are registered for online banking and or telephone banking. But wait, look at the next one. 25% of, of those registered, 25% of the 91%, so 20% of the total customers, of those registered for online banking and or telephone banking are active users. And I thought about this. We took some polls, straw polls in here, and I've asked, what is it? Like, banking is, is something that you have to do. Mm. So, so you and I have a bank app, right? Because we, we're comfortable doing that. That's fine. Um, and we're on it a couple of times a week, at least, minimum, right? If before that, we used to go to the branch at least once a week before they had this kind of technology. We did. Plenty of people still do. Occasionally, we still have to go to the branch, but plenty of people still do go, go to the branches. Um, when you, in other words, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think, what possible definition of active user mm. could there be except a normal user of a bank? Yeah. And so if only 20% of the customers of Lauriton are active online users, that tells me the other 80% don't use it. Mm. They're registered, but they don't use it. And I had a very interesting discussion with someone very high up who's in the know, who knows all, of, all the bank staff in Australia, like they know how the system works. And they informed me that the practices that were exposed at the Banking Royal Commission, where the, um, the, the banks were exposed for putting enormous pressure on their staff to sell, sell, sell those products that, that were unnecessary. You used to go into a bank and they're trying, you're trying to just get some cash out and they're trying to flog you with insurance or a home loan, all, mm. all that kind of bad stuff that lured people into so many products they didn't need, right? That was all exposed to the Royal Commission. It hasn't changed, except now the pressure is on the staff to sign people up to digital banking. Mm -hmm. And perversely, the staff who are feeling this pressure to do it know that if they succeed, they're going to lose their job. NAB, put, NAB made a submission to the mm. Regional Banking Task Force, which gave this example of, oh, uh, you know, we're, we're having some success doing this. In one of our northern New South Wales branches, the, the team there signed up a 95-year-old off a passbook onto a debit card. And this proves how great the system is. And I'm thinking, hang on, you're a huge bank. You can't give us stats about how many elderly people you've put onto... You give us one example, and that great, and this team that you're praising for having transferred this 95 year old onto a debit card, they're probably losing their jobs now mm. because of their success, right? Because here, look, look, let me just, we're not anti technology. We're the most pro technology um, political party in the country, and I can, I'll, I'll argue that till the cows come home. But real technology, Elisa, that's genuinely beneficial to people, the public embrace. Mm. Nobody has to make them do it, right? They just, they just, assimilate it. This is different. This is what we call a social engineering fraud. The banks, by their own figures, are forcing people out to, to go online because that's how they'll profit through our data and through a cut of every transaction. But the public don't want to go. So they're saying, okay, we're turning off the bank branches. And I think it's a, I mean, this is a, a, a massive brewing problem out in regional Australia. Yeah, that's right. Now, um, so the regional banking task force, we've said, set off this avalanche of bank closures. And I just want to focus on that a little bit more before we move on. 
um, because that was supposed to be <laughs> something to rectify the problem. Um, and, you know, this at the time, we, we said it was, you know, just something that the government threw out pre-election to make it look they were, like they were doing something. But it's actually gone further than that. It's yep. gone to push banks, well, to push the system to the point where uh, it's unleashed now this carnage, leaving, you know, lo local regional towns without banking. So just to revisit what was in that regional banking task force in their final report. Um, their summary, recommendations summary states that banks can, th so this is the kind of things they're advocating to change things. Yep. Banks can do more to communicate and consult with individuals and communities when closing a regional branch. Oh, wow, don't, that's tough. Don't tell the banks stop closing branches. We'll tell them, oh, please communicate it better. Yeah. Then... When branches do close, alternatives like Bank at Post can assist to maintain banking services. Ah, Don't right. Keep, keep going. I'll rant about that in a minute. And then <laughs> continuing that, that, you know, banks need to continue to support digital connectivity and literacy to help regional customers to access banking services. In other words, just force them to go digital. So those were the, in their summary of recommendations. And then I just wanted to point to recommendation three, promote and support bank at post services. It says Australia Post and participating banks should collaborate to promote bank at post services more widely and help their customers utilise the banking services available to them. This should include working together to formalise and expand programs to support transition to bank at post when branches close. And, and right, look, this, this should outrage all Australians. And let me set the scene by taking people back to the famous footage of Christine Holgate when she got ambushed um, in the Senate by the late Labor Senator Kimberly Kitching. And, and Christine Holgate was asked why she'd bought those watches. Um, and that's a, she was told that was a waste of taxpayers' money. And she said, it's not taxpayers' money, it's a commercial, we're a commercial operation. And we proved in the law that was right. They are, they, the government never gives them money, they give the government money, right? But that didn't matter to all the politicians. This is all taxpayers' money. Okay, so let's take their logic. This is the Regional Banking Task Force, which the LNP set up at the end of last year, and for some reason this Labor government adopted it as their own and published the findings saying, yeah, you banks, close your branches like crazy. You're allowed to sponge off Australia Post. And the NAB, I, I got to read the... Um, uh, the National Australia Bank submission to the task force, and it was explicit. And what's the worst part about it is all the banks were on the task force. This yeah, was NAB well, submitting to itself, and it was saying, "Yeah, yeah, we're moving people to digital, and anyone else can go to Bank at Post." Now, we know, Elisa, that the deal that Christine Holgate made the banks pay to use Bank at Post was twenty million dollars a year. And when she made that deal in 2018, she announced the deal and the amount of money, $20 million. Last year, though, three of the big the banks renewed, not ANZ, Commonwealth, NAB and Westpac, they renewed, but the renewal deal was confidential. I put in a Freedom of Information request to Australia Post, no, 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 you can't, know. And we know why, because it wasn't $20 million. Mm. The banks screwed them down. Now, it cost the banks, well... The banks told the Wallace Inquiry in 1998 that the cost of running the average branch was $1.6 million. Half of that was uh, staff. That's what they told the Wallace mm, Inquiry. Okay. So 25 years later, mm. let's say it's $2.5 million. 
right? Half of which is staff. So for about the cost of four branches, because I know that the NAB's paying no more than $10 million to Australia Post for Bank of Post a year. That's the cost of four branches. They're making Australia Post and the post offices absorb the customers of hundreds of branches, right? This is them being allowed to sponge off the taxpayer and these governments, and a pox on all their houses. The LNP were doing, were letting them do it and now the Labor Party, by publishing this report, is letting mm, them do it. Yep. And so since this report has come out, it is, this is why that series of tweets from Dale Webster is so shocking. It has been at a, an accelerating rate, these closures. They're just happening everywhere. The floodgates right? are open. That, once they had the imprimatur of this report, the banks have said, okay, no holds barred. And in fact, one of the reasons, it's, 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 they're trying to boost their profits, but they're trying to boost their profits, Elisa, at a time when they're actually getting into more trouble because of what's happening with rising interest rates and the property bubble, yes. right? They're getting desperate and they're being allowed to massively, massively disrupt Australian community life hmm. um, to do this, yeah. right? Sponging off the taxpayers. So on the one hand, you have banks that are, you know, continuing to report mega profits. Uh, we've just put the latest, got the latest figures from um, RBA and so forth that the derivatives gambling activities of the banks is up to $48.34 yeah. trillion. So, and they talk about bank branches not being cost effective. So as you said, every time they close a branch, they're saving a couple of million dollars or whatever it is. Uh, and yet they're making these immense profit, profits. And then you have such as in the news today, where NAB says they're pulling back from putting out more mortgages and the AFR said this is for a number of reasons, including wholesale funding costs are rising, putting further pressure on margins in the mortgage market. Um, the head of um, NAB, Ross McEwen, said that there are better returns to be had in the business and corporate sector. Huge turnaround. So, you know, because they've just pumped out nothing but mortgages and that's been the most profitable thing. So there is um, a tide turning here, but as you said, there's also the global factor because, you know, while they're supposedly making these profits and you've got all this derivatives gambling going on, the whole global edifice of the financial system yep. is teetering on the brink of collapse. And our banks have massive exposure in their 90-day debt to foreign borrowings. And it's not just emerging nations that are being affected by the increasing US dollar because of rising rates. You have countries like us that are dependent supposedly on importing foreign capital that are being hit by this as well. Um, now, the US Fed has put out reports, and you can read more about this in the Australian Alert Service this week, because Janet Yellen, as people might have heard, has warned that She's worried about a loss of adequate liquidity in the market for US securities. The Fed just put out its financial stability report saying that um, foreign investors could sell treasury securities and other safe US assets, potentially adversely affecting financial market functioning and the transmission of monetary policy. Foreign official holders might sell reserves to defend home currencies and private holders might sell treasury securities in the context of a widespread surge in demand for dollar cash buffers. So this is the result of their policies. Countries are not flooding the US with investment dollars as they once were. Yep. They're not buying the treasuries. And that's not just for uh, the reasons of having to prop up their own currencies and their debts uh, 
to service costing more and related things. It's also because of political reasons, because you have a lot of countries that have seen what happened to Russia. When you hold, when central banks hold uh, their Foreign reserves, reserves. Yep. in anything denominated in US dollars, you've got to be prepared that it's going to not be there any longer. Bailed in, confiscated. Um, and a related matter for the US in what they're dealing with, because these are the fruits of their own mistakes, is was mentioned in the Fed Financial Stability Report, which is that um, in terms of the Treasury market, and this contributed to the September 2019 repo market disruption, it contributed to the March 2020 Treasury market dislocation, uh, they've turned over a lot more of the money market making activities in terms of selling Treasury bonds and providing short-term liquidity, which is what the repo market is, to the shadow banking sector, including hedge funds, which are very highly leveraged. They speculate, they specialise in speculating in derivatives. And the Securities Exchange Commission on the 14th of September has said this is a problem because a reduction in market visibility of these very thinly, if not non-regulated entities at all, carries implications for systemic risk. So there, all the headlines in the New York Times and so forth are saying, could what happened in the UK, where their bond mm. market fell, fell apart, nearly bringing down all the pension funds, could this happen in the US? Well, it already happened there, as we point out in the article, in September 2019 and in March 2020. But yeah, it's going to happen again. But the, it's the entire global system, which is um, yep. completely interconnected. There's no separating it out unless we create our own sovereign banking system once again. Yeah, and our big four banks are connected into that, right? And it's actually, um, it's the desperation driving them to do what they're doing in this massive, they just see it as a cost-cutting spree. We're looking at it from the standpoint of what's good for the Australian people. You need financial services. You need an infrastructure for financial services. And the banks are showing they have no commitment to them at all. And that's fine. If it, but the government should not let them sponge off the taxpayer. Tell them to bugger off, set up a public bank that can serve all of Australia. Yeah. And yet the argument... A postal bank. <clears throat> the argument from the Regional Banking Task Force that the postal bank is not necessary is because Bank at Post exists, as you yeah. said, the sponging factor is still there. And just um, so, for the, so the audience is clear, Bank at Post means the customer can still bank with that bank through the post office. A postal bank means the bank will lose that customer to a bank, a public bank, that will give them a much better deal. And that's why the banks don't want it. And they, they're still making big profits, Elisa, but they are the, the pressure is on those profits for, because of all those things you've said. And they're, they're being allowed to just, you know, massively disrupt Australia um, for their own purposes, mm -hmm. right? Now, our next topic is Australia condemns itself to nuclear destruction. And I just want to make this point before we get into the meat of it, because, um, you know, we are in this collapsing financial architecture. And Colonel Douglas McGregor, um, you know, a top US former military figure, uh, and we played a video from him a couple of weeks ago on the show. He's made some very serious warnings about how there's preparations to put American boots on the ground or a coalition of the willing force on the ground into Ukraine um, that this can lead us into World War III. And he made the point in another interview this week that collapsing Anglo-American US dollar financial dominance is a major factor leading to this war because you have countries like Russia who've made it clear, as he said, that they're no longer going to be subjugated to this current financial architecture. And he said there's a lot of people who happen to agree with Mr Putin on this, yeah. right? So China and Russia 
are standing in the way of that um, continued system of being able to prop up and continue that financial dominance, which is the main means of control and power globally. And, Sa and Alisa, Saudi Arabia is in discussions with China mm. to settle oil trades in Yuan. Yeah. And the history, the, the whole reason the US dollar has still still has value as a reserve currency is because it's the petrodollar. Mm -hmm. Up in 1973, the, the Saudis and OPEC said they would only accept payment in US dollars. It's the oil trade that's propped them up. And this is huge. This is tectonic. Well, and the Americans have done it to themselves. Saudi Arabia, Arabia now wants to join the BRICS along with Argentina, Iran and Algeria. And you can read more about, contact us for a copy of our alert services, an article on that in there as well, which outlines how rapidly a new financial architecture is taking shape um, from a lot of the majority of countries actually around the world. Um, now, we want to talk a bit about the nuclear danger, particularly this week. We've talked a lot about why this war is happening in the first place. Um, we're not going to go through all of that again. You can watch previous shows. But basically, we're at a point where Russia felt the need just the other day to reiterate what they had stated in January at the United Nations Security Council and which the UNSC had agreed to, which is that nuclear war cannot be won and therefore must never be fought. Nuclear yep. war must be taken off the table. So Russia reiterated their commitment to that, demanding that the other nuclear powers do the same. But the US is doing quite the opposite. On the 3rd of November, the head of the US Strategic Command, Navy Admiral Charles Rich Richard, who commands the US nuclear forces, issued a call to ramp up US nuclear armaments production in a mobilisation like the moon landing. He called Ukraine the warm-up for the big one, which is confrontation with China. And that's reflected by the so new... Warm-up is the right word there. And that, that idea is reflected in the new US nuclear posture review issued with the new national security strategy and national defence strategy and new missile defence review, which were all released last month and, again, which we've covered and we'll do more coverage of that in the alert. On the 4th of November, which is the next day after that call for the ramp-up of nuke production, the Pentagon announced a permanent German headquarters to oversee Ukrainian military aid for the long term. So the Pentagon establishing a headquarters in Germany to oversee the war effort for the long term. Um, that intersects... and, what, and what that does, it just takes away, if there's the slightest bit of doubt, it takes it all away. Ameri it's a proxy war. Yeah. The Russians know they're fighting the Americans making the decisions in that building in Germany. Mm -hmm. That's how the war is being played. It is, it is a war between Russia and um, the United States. That's just the reality. Now, the following day, a number of leading experts in the field that have been making warnings about this um, came together with the Executive Intelligence Review magazine, collaborators of ours in the United States, who've long been fighting against this war to really lay out the danger of what we're facing here and that included University of Missouri nuclear weapons expert Stephen Starr and he gave a really a spine-chilling sense, he's a nuclear weapons expert, of what it would look like if a nuclear weapon is dropped, like for example in New York is one of the examples, a 400 yeah. odd kilometre square radius that wouldn't survive, what a nuclear winter would look like. Again, you can look at the alert service for more on this. Um, you had former French military leaders, um, former American military figures, uh, former 
UN Weapons Inspector Scott Ritter, and we want to show uh, a little bit just to give people the flavour of this. It's, it's worth watching the whole Scott Ritter thing. We don't have time for that. I just want to play the very ending of, of, of his remarks and where he's, he's talking about, he describes what's called, the, he, he tells a story and he describes what's called the dead hand. And basically what he's trying to appeal to his Americans, if they've got any fantasy that their technological superiority over Russia means they can win a war, he's, he's going to explain to them why that's not possible. Mm. And, and anyway, just listen to it. Now people say, oh, wait a minute, can't we win a nuclear war? Let me give you a quick war story and I'll end with this. I, ins I was an inspector outside of a Soviet missile factory. Bought the kids. They produced the SS 20s. We were ensuring they didn't produce any more. They also produced something called the SS 25. And we had a little incident in, um, in March of 1990 where um, we had this giant x ray machine that we wanted to, by treaty, we're supposed to x ray the SS 25 canisters to make sure they weren't hiding SS 20 missiles inside. Uh, and the Soviets refused to allow it to go operational for reasons I won't go in here. It wasn't their fault. Um, but in the process during the crisis, they sent three missiles out of their plant. And um, we, we were like, why would they do this? Why would they, why would they risk the ire of the United States, risk the treaty, three <laughs> missiles out of the plant? Well, it turned out that those missiles were SS-25 missiles. They weren't prohibited by the treaty, but they weren't missiles designed to deliver nuclear warheads. They were missiles designed to carry a communications package. They were called, they, the, 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 the SS-25 was no longer the Topol, it was the Sirena. And the Sirena is part of a system called the Dead Hand or Perimeter. And these missiles were part of nine, a, a contingent of nine, six had already been sent out uh, that were a special regiment that in times of conflict automatically go to the field. They're always in the field. And if we succeeded in carrying out a first strike against Russia that decapitated their leadership, the people in Washington, D.C. might think, the war gamers might think, aha, advantage America, Russia won't do anything. Russia will do everything because the dead hand takes over. Destroy uh, Russian or Soviet command and control. Communication signals are sent to the dead hand control room, stop functioning. And when they stop functioning, the dead hand kicks in. And the dead hand launches these Sirena missiles with their communication package, and they fly across the, the, the length of Russia broadcasting launch codes, which automatically send the entirety of the Soviet nuclear force to their targets, the world ends. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot win a nuclear war. It's impossible. And yet we continue to build weapons that makes us think that we can manage the escalation of a nuclear conflict. It cannot be done. We use one nuclear weapons against the Russians. They launch everything automatically. There is no escalation control. There is no escalate to de-escalate. There's only instant Armageddon, the death of all humanity. And that's the message I want to impart. Nuclear wars cannot be won. They should never be fought. And therefore, nuclear weapons should never exist. And the bottom line is, Elisa, everyone has to understand that you cannot go near that threshold to nuclear war. There's no, it's the end of the world. There's mm. no coming back from it. And Australia... You know, with that in mind, Australia's putting a nuclear bullseye on itself. As we said, there's a really important report that Four Corners put out um, this week about Washington, which, you know, everyone's heard about, deploying B-52 bombers to Darwin. Um, now, they, they, you know, examined this, and, of course, there's no official announcement, but they found the, um, the blueprints for Tyndall Air 
Air Base showing plans to accommodate six B-52, you know, these massive bombers, jet fuel tanks to resupply them, maintenance centres. But they, they found these from the contracts by American contractors to the US Defence Department. Yeah. That was where they had to go looking to prove that this was real. Um, and then, you know, so you think about this at Tyndall Air Base, and we'll put footage up in the background while this is going on. B these B-52s are nuclear capable. Yeah. They're just not going to tell us if they have nukes or They'll not. They'll leave it ambiguous um, for deliberate reasons. And in the fork on the show, which again is worth watching in its totality, um, they show these war games which we'll put up on the screen. And this Center for New American Strategy war game anticipates that, of course, the Chinese would have plans to retaliate if, you know, things go south against Tyndall Air Base in the Northern Territory. So, and Pine Gap is another um, target, Richard Tanter, Melbourne academic, who has been warning against uh, these dangers. He said, hosting strategic bombers effectively locks Australia into participating in a US-led war. And as such, uh, he said, it's a sign to the Chinese that we are willing to be the tip of the spear. He said, it's very hard to think of a more open commitment that we could make, a more open signal to the Chinese that we are going along with Americans, with American planning for a war with China. And he went through how there's been massive expansion in size and capability at Pine Gap, new antennae to intersect Russian and Chinese communications. Right, so we would be a key communications point uh, in order that would have to be disrupted to disrupt the American or Anglo-American war effort. That's why Pine Gap's a target. Um, there's an article out in Pearls and Irritations by Mike Scrafton as well, a former senior defence official. Um, he said, in absence of official statements about the presence of these B-52s, we, ha we have to take our guidance from US government statements because that's where our policy is coming from. So mm. just look at what the <laughs> yeah, US is saying. And that includes the new national defence strategy, which I mentioned before. Um, and he quotes that national defence strategy um, from the document itself, it says the NDS effectively, uh, sorry, this is what he says, this is his words, the NDS effectively confirms Australia's role in American nuclear war planning. It declares, and this is from the report, the 2022 National Defence Strategy is a call to action for the defence enterprise to incorporate allies and partners at every stage of defence planning and Scrafton adds, including nuclear, which is implicit, yep. but it's pretty explicit, really, uh, as far as it goes. Yep, this, this is what we're doing to ourselves. Let, let me end on a slight sliver of optimism in this, in, in this regard, um, and that is I'm going to read you a tweet. Yesterday I met Chinese Ambassador Xiao Qian. We had a constructive meeting where we discussed security, trade and human rights issues. I will continue to engage in an open and honest dialogue in matters relating to the safety, security and prosperity of our region. And that was by opposition leader Peter Dutton. And yeah. in the election, Elisa, he attacked Richard Miles for even going, as Richard Miles was on opposition then, for going and meeting the embassy. Now he's done it. Um, Anthony Albanese wants to meet Xi Jinping on the sidelines of Bali next week, right? The, the McCarthyism that Peter Dutton expressed back during the election when he attacked Richard Miles for meeting the embassy and when he said we must prepare for war, right, we, our party, have played a role in breaking... It's not gone, but we have been hammering it and it's starting to weaken. If, if this guy, Mr Prepare for War, is happy to go and meet the Chinese um, ambassador himself because talking 
is better than fighting. Bottom line, talking is better than fighting. Well, the fighting option, which we've just gone through, is not there's an no, option. It's not an option. It's not exactly. an option. So we have to talk and we have to resolve it. And it, what's more, it can be done. Um, so that's the show for this week. Look in the info box below. You'll see links for how you can get engaged, including putting your submission into ASIC if you're a victim of ASIC, um, contacting your um, local council about the necessity for a people's bank to actually give the regional communities back the banking services they absolutely desperately need. Yep. Stop being abused by private banks. Take them on. Join our fight. Yep. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Thanks. for tuning in. Thanks, Alisa. See you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.